0: Welcome to Evidence Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So, tonight we're going to start out talking about COVID again. Um, This time, I wanted to spend some actual, uh, a fairly large amount of time because there's been some really interesting um, studies that have come out. And also there's a fun story. It really actually is kind of cool um, about a collaboration between um, people who play wind instruments and researchers to figure out how to best uh, navigate playing and being responsible and not spreading COVID. So I think that should be fun. And then we'll turn to... Our normal sort of smattering of science uh, and science stories. Okay, so unsurprisingly, uh, COVID is still with us. Um, and so the CDC has started to put out a recommendation that if you are immunocompromised, you can get a booster. Again, there is no indication right now that people who are otherwise healthy, who have gotten especially the two dose of either Moderna or Pfizer, need a booster unless they have an actual underlying issue, such as having, um, being immunocompromised, especially if you have had a recent, um, transplant. So if you've had a recent, um, actual, um, organ transplant, those people definitely need to have a booster. But again, please don't look for a booster until the CDC says that it's absolutely necessary. Um, We really need to keep focusing on getting people vaccinated to begin with. And all of the evidence still shows that even if you are unfortunate enough to catch COVID-19 after you've been vaccinated fully, with the two-dose or the one-dose J&J, you are much less likely to be able to be hospitalized or have long-term effects. And so um, all of that is holding up very steadily. And so, yeah. But let's talk about numbers. Unsurprisingly, a new report has found that there was higher all-cause mortality which means not just from COVID, but all causes, observed in US working age adults, those sixteen to uh, sorry, nineteen to sixty-four, without health insurance, with lower household income, limited work-from-home options, those who are incarcerated or living in health-related group quarters. That's the uh, official way of saying basically long-term care, nursing homes, any place where people are grouped in a building and they're not all related to one another for some reason. So um, apartment buildings are also considered group quarters, quote unquote, Um, but here it's health related. So obviously long-term care, nursing homes, things like that. Mortality rates were 1,619 for people in health-related group quarters, 83 for the incarcerated, and 16 for other adults. They also found that mortality was higher among non-Hispanic Black adults, regardless of their circumstances. That means regardless of socioeconomic status, ability to work from home, just... They had a higher mortality rate. Mortality was higher among Hispanic adults, among people with health insurance, not living in group quarters, lower income with work from home options and those in essential industries. So this is from a paper published in Health Affairs by Sarah Miller, an assistant professor of business economics and public policy at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and her colleagues. And so in addition to demographic differences, they found that the largest sectors of work affected were those related to, quote, installation, maintenance and repair and production, which obviously, again, makes a lot of sense. Those are the kinds of things that you can't do from home. You have to be out and about and you have to be in contact with people um so not really surprising but it's good to be able to actually look at the numbers and say we can show that this is a problem and i think we've all heard um about how basically i mean i don't want to start an entire <laughs> i don't want to get off on a tangent about um how we treat incarcerated people in this country cuz i'll go on for days um but we We know that being incarcerated was one of the worst things that could happen to you in terms of your uh, probability of getting COVID-19, not getting proper medical treatment for getting COVID-19, for mortality. It just, um, you know, prisons are, A, by their very nature, places that are not easy to uh, secure in the sense of uh, health measures. So even though theoretically you can quarantine people in their cells, those cells are still connected to one another in ways that just there are, you know, communal places that people have to go to and it's just, it's not conducive um, to being able to keep people from getting infected with diseases when members of the community have that going on. And also, uh, frankly, in this country, we don't treat people who are incarcerated with any kind of uh, care or dignity or anything. And so basically, no one could care less. Uh, There was absolutely no public will, no, um, you know, reform movement, except for, of course, people who were already in the uh, movement to reform uh, incarceration in this country. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, again, we're not getting off on that tangent. And so, all in all, COVID-19 has decreased the overall U.S. life expectancy from 7874 to 77.43 years. Compared to the white population that lost just under a year, 0.94 to be exact, reductions were 3.2 times larger for Latino populations at 3.03 years and two times larger for the black population at 1.9 years. Now, these figures were derived from a cross-sectional study using 380,000 868 COVID-19 deaths in 2020 reported to the National Center for Health Statistics to estimate changes to life expectancy. Now, it may have some limitations because of differential reporting on death certificates. It wasn't always clear, um, you know, it's not always clear what ultimately killed someone. And so uh, researchers basically unanimously almost agree that deaths due to COVID-19 are most likely underreported. Now in something that I've wanting I've been waiting to hear more about and that someone actually asked me also about the other day. So uh we this is from a preprint article, which means it should be taken with a grain of salt. It hasn't been peer reviewed, but I think it's still worth talking about because it makes um sense and it's something that I'm interested in knowing more about. So I'll have to check back on this. And so researchers in Greece compared the antibody levels of vaccinated healthcare workers to those of unvaccinated individuals with natural infection, basically meaning that they got COVID 19 at some point and now have uh, antibodies because of that infection. They found that those who had been vaccinated had a median antibody level of 15,877 AU per milliliter while those who had natural infections varied based on severity with medians of 9 AU per milliliter for asymptomatic infections, 1,634 for mild cases, 6,082 for moderate, 6,638 for severe, and 11,975 for those who became critically ill the 871 healthcare workers had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine compared to 181 subjects with natural infection. Now, in case you're wondering what AU is, I just want to take a second to talk about that because it's interesting. AU means arbitrary units. And so basically, they were measuring the amount of antibodies per milliliter in serum. And so there's not really a measure for that. It's just antibodies. So when you have something like that, you use a U, um, in order to, uh, test what exactly is, or to, to indicate that it's not something like, um, parts per million or, um, you know, some other kind of, um, measurement. Anyways, (laughs) so, um, Immune responses were measured one to two weeks after complete vaccination and 15 to 59 days post symptoms in persons who had been infected. Now, of course, this has two possible limitations. First, cellular immune responses were not evaluated. So this means they basically simply counted the antibodies and didn't do any challenge work. They didn't use those antibodies on any COVID-19 to see if they worked differently so um, it's just about raw numbers. The other is that it's still an open question, with the CDC set to make recommendations and release further information on, again, talking about this and, you know, they're starting to make those recommendations, but about how long the high load of antibodies persist in those who have been vaccinated. So, you know, they took the the immune response one to two weeks after complete vaccination. But it could be that that vaccination level doesn't stay as high over a longer period of time. Um, And it looks like, you know, we're getting more of that information now. We're starting to get that. And again, it still looks like if you have the vaccine, if you have gotten the full set or the J&J1 dose, then you are in good shape even with the Delta variant at the moment. And so uh, let's move on to a review of, this is actually kind of a bit of sort of good news, a review of pre and post COVID-19 onset from the Wisconsin health system shows that monthly antibiotic prescriptions for respiratory tract infections fell 79% from 10.5 to 2.2 prescriptions per thousand patients. Winter seasonal viruses, influenza, seasonal coronavirus, etc., currently average 12 per month, compared with 4,800 per month in previous seasons. Other respiratory viruses, virus detections decreased from 560 per month pre-pandemic to 228 per month during the pandemic. Now, this is according to a paper published in the Journal of American Medicine, Internal Medicine and again this is actually a really cool outcome because it shows very clearly how simple measures such as masking social distancing and rapid testing can both limit the exposure and infection of of other viruses which of course isn't terribly surprising but what is surprising is that it helped and it's it's you know when you when you think about it down the line it's not that surprising but I think it's interesting that it helped lead to a decrease in antibiotic prescriptions, which is an absolute good thing. Um, Antibiotic overprescription in this country is a real problem, and it's a real problem around the world. Let's be perfectly honest. We're not the only ones. And so basically, once you're diagnosed with a virus, antibiotic prescriptions would be contraindicated. And so if we know that you have a virus then antibiotics just they don't work on viruses and so if you're getting tested if you are getting tested for things like um, COVID-19 and then you know you're going to your doctor and they might say well let's check you for the flu and so um you know it's it's really good to be able to do that both the just you know, cutting the absolute amount of people getting infections. And also by that uh, measure, not having them going to their doctor and frankly demanding uh, antibiotics, which is something that does happen. And some doctors are, you know, they will give people antibiotics, even though, you know, they know it isn't going to help them, which is unfortunate. Okay. Okay. Finally, like I said, we are going to talk about a novel collaboration between wind instrument performers and researchers to learn the risks of spreading COVID while performing and ways to mitigate those risks. So one of the big, first big super spreader events on the West Coast, we talked about the one on the East Coast last week. Uh, that helped show that COVID-19 was spread by aerosol was on March 10th, 2020, when the Skagit Valley Choral of Washington State gathered together 61 members to sing. Now, if you remember back in the very first days of COVID, we really thought that surfaces were the main spreader. So touching people, touching a surface that someone had uh, touched that had COVID-19 And so the singers had been careful. They refrained from hugs and handshakes, uh, put space between the chairs, and used hand sanitizers. Despite this, two weeks out from the meeting, 52 members had either tested positive or were presumptive positives. Three were hospitalized, and two died. When we saw the Skagit Valley Choir spread, we knew right away that the coronavirus was spreading via aerosol, said Mark Speed, director of bands at Clemson University in South Carolina. Speed is one of the lead researchers of a coalition that developed protocols for performing arts students during the pandemic. A study conducted by the group in late April showed that out of 30,000 U.S. high schools and college music programs About a third had no in-person rehearsals through the end of the 2021 school year. But some musicians were more proactive. The Minneapolis-based Minnesota Orchestra reached out to Jirong Hong, a mechanical engineer at the University of Minnesota. Hong had published a study in July 2020 on indoor transmission of the coronavirus. The orchestra asked Hong and his colleagues to provide scientifically driven guidelines to help them get back to their work safely Hom um says similar work was done by engineer Leah betcher at the bauhaus universitat weimar in germany musicians reached out to her and her lab group after seeing a video demonstration of how coughing spread the virus betcher worked with local musicians to track the dispersion of air from instruments with mouthpieces and Speed was also working hard. He and James Weaver, director of performing arts and sports for the National Federation of State High Schools, high school associations in Indianapolis, worked with mechanical engineers at the University of Colorado Boulder and the University of Maryland College Park to study the risk posed by various performance activities. They were hoping to be able to move forward with teaching and performances in the fall of 2020 studies of musicians ended up in two categories according to Juliet o'keefe an environmental health scientist at the national collaborating center for environmental health of vancouver some were qualitative looking visually at how the air flows out of the instruments the others were quantitative they measured properties of the air, air particles such as size concentration and distance traveled. Betcher and her team used qualitative methods. They used a Shailoran mirror, which uses temperature and pressure differences between static and exhaled air in order to turn air patterns into visual light patterns. If you've ever watched a video uh, which is basically like a silhouette of people coughing, uh, especially with various masks on, that one was very popular, For a while you've seen a Shailoran mirror in action. Hong's lab on the other hand used quantitative methods. They used an aerodynamic particle sizer, a kind of spectrometer that measures particle diameters that have been used in studying particles that may spread COVID-19. Speed and Weaver's team used both kinds of methods including The Shailoran mirror, as well as measurements taken in a dedicated aerosol testing room with a ventilation system that allows for isolation of aerosols. Now, a big caveat for all of these studies, however, must be noted before we talk about results. These studies all had very small sample sizes. Variations in performance style, talent, experience, and other factors can all affect the outcome of an individual's possibility of spreading virus par- particles while performing. And of course, any small sample size in a study is always hard to extrapolate to a larger cohort. But that being said, they found results that seem pretty straightforward um, and intuitive, though, of course, that's not always an indicator of reality. They found that instruments such as a tuba or a bassoon had relatively low rates of particle spread, while clarinets, trombone, oboe, and especially trumpets had high levels of particle dispersal, or higher. As an example of the challenge in quantifying results, two clarinet players in study had very different rates of aerosols, with one player producing five times the amount as the second did. He hypothesized that the difference was that one used a, quote, harder re- read, that is one that is typically used by more advanced musicians, and takes more breath to be able to um, have it produce the proper sounds. In addition, how one positions the mouth, again, may also affect the rate, he noted. Fetcher's results found largely the same thing. All in all, when compared to speaking loudly or singing, though, wind instruments produced around the same amount of aerosols. Eventually, Speed and Weaver built up a set of guidelines for student musicians based on the information provided by engineers at the University of Colorado and the University of Maryland. That study included 12 performers playing nine different instruments. The measures they developed included masks for all performers and bell covers on instruments. They they suggested maintaining six feet of distance between players with trombones requiring a nine by six foot distance. A maximum of 30 minutes for indoor rehearsals and 60 minutes outdoors. Rooms had to be vacated for at least one air exchange before being reused. They recommended outdoors whenever possible, but if indoors, windows and doors should be opened and a HEPA filter filtration system employed if possible. Finally, spit valves were to be emptied into buckets with an alcohol solution and hands were to be washed frequently. At the end of the 2021 school year, they sent out a survey to high school and college music programs. Of 3,000 responses, around 2,800 reported using some or all of the guidelines. Among the programs, there were almost no cases of coronavirus spread. Of 3,000 of them, only eight programs reported a spread between students. Five in choirs, two in bands, and one in an orchestra. Seven of the eight cases involved just a single person-to-person transmission. Two of the schools had not used any of the recommended guidelines. With hundreds or thousands of hours of rehearsal and millions of people participating, Weaver says, the fact that we've had so few cases of spread, we're pretty confident in the mitigations. Speed and Weaver believe these protocols could be useful beyond the pandemic for instance during cold and flu season and other infectious disease outbreaks. Another suggestion that comes from a study by researchers at the University of Utah, Salt Lake City, suggests, based on Hong's measurements, that moving percussion instruments towards the center of a stage and moving the highest risk winds near air vents that pull air from the room can cut the amount of aerosol accumulation. The Utah Symphony, which collaborated with the researchers, made the change for their spring 2021 concert season. So hopefully, with good guidelines and adherence to safety measures, music can once again fill the air, even if we continue to struggle with uh, COVID-19 infections. Okay, so I think that's a sufficient info dump for this week on the COVID-19 front. Uh, We're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to talk about, uh, unfortunately, we're going to talk about Percy again, uh, the Perseverance rover. And this is a bit of a sad uh, update, but it's not, you know, it's just a little sad um, and everything will be fine in the end. So do stay tuned for that. We will be right back. You are listening to Evidence. Based Radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP Northampton. Every week we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper-versus-plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Kids Show on WXOJ is a great show, Saturday mornings, 8 to 9. So please tune in and listen to it. I want my milk and I want it now. I want my milk and I want it now. My breast and well, I want my bottle both. And I want my milk and I want it now. And I want you to listen to the kids' show. I want my bath and I want it now. So we'll see you next Saturday. I want. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lillylibrary.org. Radio should be fun. So on Sundays, we get weird. Mad Hatter's Mix. Challenge normal from 1 to 3. Connect the dots with me from Tori Amos to Weird Al to Muse to the Proto Men to Monty Python and back to Tori Amos. Sketches, stand-up, some kickin' tunes. Mad Hatter's Mix. Sundays at 1 on 103.3 WXOJ, Valley Free Radio. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I'm meeting place at our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Like I said, we're going to move on and we're going to start with a quick update from NASA on the Perseverance mission. Now, Percy is still doing great. All systems are working. However, there has been a hiccup. We were all excited by the news recently that Percy had been successful in procuring its first sample of Martian rock for later retrieval. Unfortunately, it looks like that excitement was a bit premature. The volume measurement and post-measurement image arrived, indicating that the sample tube was empty. It took a few minutes for this reality to sink in, but the team quickly transitioned to investigation mode, wrote Louise Jadura, the chief engineer for sampling and caching at at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in a blog post. Now the problem wasn't anything Percy did or didn't do. The execution of the sampling run was perfect. Instead, it turns out that the composition of the rock caused it to crumble away before it could be captured in the sample tube. After analyzing images from the coring site, inside the sample tube, and even looking around the path that the rover had taken, since they concluded that the would-be sample is instead powdered in and around the borehole, which was imaged by the Watson camera, and which showed that the amount of debris is more than would be expected if the core sampling had been successful. The hardware performed as commanded, but the rock did not cooperate this time, Jindura said. But again, this is just the first try. Percy is currently on its way to the next planned sampling location the south end of the Martian Seta, a rugged area of dunes previously scouted by Ingenuity. Imaging suggests that Percy is more likely to encounter the kind of sedimentary Martian rock that Percy's equipment was tested on. This next attempt will take place in early September. Um, I should say sedimentary rock that is like what's on Mars. I don't think they had actual uh, Martian sedimentary rock to test Percy on. So just wanted to make that clarification. <laughs> um, okay. So we are going to dive back again into the world of archaeology and anthropology for a little bit. Um, I think I've spent a ton of time on space and, uh, I have to say that archaeology is one of my favorite subjects. So, uh, Excuse me if I've been indulging in the last couple of weeks in some really interesting stories in that field rather than uh, physics and astronomy where I'm a little bit less, uh, you know, uh, comfortable in trying to explain things. Uh, You know, I think that it's much easier for me to to talk about uh, archaeological findings than things like uh, spin and um, quantum fields and that sort of thing. (laughs) So, new research from archaeologists at Washington University in St. Louis show that in China, cows and their meat and dairy played a larger role in human diets than previously thought. It also suggests that they prized these animals perhaps above the sheep and goats that had previously served as the bulk of their domestic production. Cows were kept closer to home and were fed byproducts of grain produced by Produced first for human consumption, like the grass stalks of millet plants. And so a study published in scientific reports synthesized new and previously published data from nine archaeological sites along the Hexi Corridor, a key region of movement of ancient crops between Central and East Asia, located between the Gobi Desert and the Tibetan Plateau. Petra Vaglova, Postdoctoral research associate and Jin Li Liu, associate professor of archaeology and arts and sciences, looked at bone records and other isotopic data from humans, animals, and plants. Using the method of stable isotope analysis, we looked at the diets of the local herbivores that was managed in the Bronze Age Hexi corridor of northwestern China. The results show that cattle and sheep or goats were managed distinctly in the different ecological niches across the studying region. We propose that this was a result of varying management choices made by the local farmers who aim to strike a balance between tradition and innovation. In previous research, this method has been applied to understanding the nature of human diets and the role of different domesticates in it, said Veglova. In this paper, we switched focus to trying to understand the minutiae of animal diets and what that tells us about animal management in the Bronze Age. And so what they found was evidence that while sheep and goats grazed on locally available wild plants, cows were both grazed and were fed crops that were being cultivated by people. Liu and colleagues in his lab at Washington University are studying how social and culinary systems affected the choices of imported crops and animals in China. And so they looked at how foreign innovations were folded into existing and highly organized social and cultural systems in central China. They found a similar adoption and adaptation in the Hexai Corridor including converting pig-rearing areas to cattle stall-feeding, where sufficient grazing lands weren't available. And this pattern holds true right into the current day. And for Leo, it's important not only from a scientific point of view and a historical point of view, but also in order to apply lessons from the past to the future. In the context of a warming climate, where soil moisture is predicted to be increasingly depleted on a global scale, one can draw parallels to the mid-Holocene conditions of northwest China, Liu said. The spread of farming across the Eurasian continent between 5,000 and 1,500 BC had profound long-term social impacts, he said. Identifying the specific nature of agricultural innovations, in the continental interior can be helpful with cultivation practices in modern day marginal environments so yeah definitely a good way in order to learn lessons from the past and especially since we're going to need all of the help that we can get um yeah uh (laughs) And I know that, that, you know, it is August and so New England does tend to have some terrible days in August, but, um, I went out this mo- morning briefly just to fill the bird feeder. And by the time I got back into my house, I was just, I felt actually ill just from having been outside and breathing the poor quality air for maybe 10 minutes at most. Um, and, again, this is August and so that's not highly unusual. Uh, we do tend to have fairly humid, unhappy, uh, high temperature days in August, but, um, it was still pretty bad. And of course, uh, what's really happening is things like, you know, 115 degree weather in Canada and, uh, crazy flooding in central Europe, uh, and, you know, increased hurricanes and all sorts of things that are, uh, definitely very much linked to climate change and to a warming, uh, globe. And so, yeah. And again, we, uh, live in a country that doesn't seem to actually want to care, um, and so it's very frustrating and so that's why we're going to talk about another archaeology story now. (laughs) So turning to Europe, a medieval grave grave in Finland which was thought to hold the body of a female warrior or ruler has instead turned out to perhaps contain the grave of an intersexed or non-binary person. The 900 year old grave from Sunitaka in southern Finland was first excavated in 1968. Inside was found an individual wearing oval birches on top of woolen textiles, dressed that is, quote, a typical feminine costume of the era, a team of researchers wrote in a paper published in the European Journal of Archaeology. So yeah, that's very typical of a uh, female uh, dress from that era of um sort of a um a drape drapery that is held up with these big oval brooches, um, and so very typical of female um costuming. And so a sword is found on the individual's left side, and another sword was likely buried sometimes at sometime after the person was interred, was buried above the grave. Since then the grave has been interpreted as evidence of powerful women even female warriors and leaders in early medieval Finland, the researchers wrote. New DNA research, however, has revealed that the person was anatomically male and had Kleinfelter syndrome, in which the sex chromosomes, instead of being XY or XX, are XXY. And so this can cause breast enlargement, infertility, and a small phallus. The researchers suggest that the person may have identified as non binary. Given the quality of grave goods, the person was clearly a member in good standing of the community. It has been suggested that, in the ultra-masculine environment of early medieval Scandinavia, men with feminine social roles and men dressing in feminine clothes were disrespected and considered shameful, the researchers wrote. And so, this finding would suggest otherwise. Though again, given the quality of the jewelry and swords, the person most likely came from a wealthy and perhaps influential family. The the individual could have been a respected member of a community because of their physical and psychological differences from the other members of that community, but it's also possible that the individual was accepted as a non-binary person because they already had a distinctive or secured position in the community for other reasons. For example, by belonging to a relatively wealthy or well-connected family, the researchers wrote. Now, another possibility is that the person was a shaman. Surviving texts suggest that shamans were men who wore women's clothes because Odin was associated with feminine magic. Now, there is a caveat to the research, um, but before that, I want to just point out how hard it is to do this kind of work sometimes so interpreting a set of bones and grave goods can be very difficult um you know the only reason that this is being able to be revisited is because they were able to take a dna sample but otherwise it probably would have remained as being considered a woman Now, I also want to say that just because this person may not have been a woman, uh, doesn't mean that there aren't other graves that indicate that some women may have, um, actually been warriors and had, um, important positions. That's not, this wasn't the sole grave, um, of a woman, um, that was used for that evidence. But I think that it's, you know, we obviously want to know what was really going on with this person because what was really going on with the person is potentially much more interesting, um, than simply the fact that it was a woman who was a warrior. Now, the big caveat is that DNA sample. So it was very small. And so they had to develop a new mathematical modeling system to determine the chromosomal makeup notes lead author Ulla Moilinen, a doctoral student in archaeology at the University of Turku in Finland. But despite this, most scholars seem to support their findings. The team had a minuscule amount of data to work with, but convincingly showed that the individual likely had an XXY karyotype, said Peter Heinzmann, a professor at the Arctic University of Norway who is an expert in ancient DNA analysis. I think it is a well-researched study of an interesting burial which demonstrates that early medieval societies had very nuanced approach to an understanding of gender identities, said Leslie Gardella, a researcher at the National Museum of Denmark. Gardella especially notes the placement of the sword on the left-hand side. There are some burials in which women were buried with swords on their left, but the majority of male bur- burials have the sword at the right hand. The placement thus seems to imply, quote, some kind of difference of the deceased, Gardella said. So, very interesting. Um, Still hard to interpret, even with that new knowledge, because there are still many different ways in which that, that person could have presented, they could have Been able to just be wealthy, and so were able for people to just respect them because of their wealth. It could be that they were respected because of their difference. Um, It could be that they just simply were accepted as who they were. Um, It's really it's hard to tell. Um, Unfortunately, there's not a lot of uh, sort of black and white guess no answers in this kind of work. Unfortunately, okay. So in other genetic news. The indigenous Aita megbukton people of the Philippines have been found to have some of the highest levels of Denisovan DNA markers of any group in the world. The group has around 5% of their genetic makeup traceable to Denisovan ancestry. Evolutionary geneticists Maximilian Lorena and Matthias Jakobsen, both at Uppsala University in Sweden, and their team describe the new evidence in August's current biology. Their research indicates that two separate groups of Neolithic Denisovans reach the area that includes the Philippines as well as the continent that now basically uh, the area of uh, Papua New Guinea, Australia, and Tasmania. There used to be Uh, much more of that land used to be exposed. A lot of it has, uh, as sea level has risen, a lot of land there has uh, ceded to the sea. Um, So if you know about, for instance, Doggerland, the uh, land bridge between the European continent and England, it's very much like that, very much same time frame too. Um, So there was Doggerland was uh, in the North Atlantic, and down in the South Pacific, there was, it has a name, and it's completely escaping me, I'm sorry. But, um, so we're not exactly sure when uh, they got there, but we do have 200,000 year old stone tools that were found on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi, which may have been used by Denisovans. Now, Homo sapiens reached the area around 50,000 years ago and interbred with the Denisovans already living in the area, hence those genetic markers uh, in their uh, far descendants. Now, despite recent breakthroughs in genetic testing and evaluation of ancient remains, the Denisovans really are still a lot of a mystery. It's unclear how the different Denisovan groups on the mainland and on Southeast Asian islands were related to each other, and how genetically diverse they were, Jakobsen says. Previously, it was thought that Papua New Guinea Highlanders had the highest admixture, with close to 4%. The Aita Meghukong, I'm so sorry, I'm almost certainly mispronouncing that, are suspected to have interbred less with East Asians that arrived around 2,281 years ago, which diluted the amount of Denisovan genetic makeup of other indigenous people in the area. Now, there's a moniker uh, that stems from colonialist roots for these uh, indigenous peoples. Um, I don't want to use it. Uh, Even though it's the term that people use, I'm still refraining from using it. You can look it up if you want, Um, but it's not really important. but I just want to, wanted to note that uh, definitely time to retire some of these words uh, from our usage. And it's not to erase the past. It's simply to make the future a little less obnoxious, frankly. Okay. So the study compared ancient DNA from Denisovans and Neanderthals with that of 1,107 individuals from 118 ethnic groups in the Philippines, including 25 indigenous people groups. These results were then compared with present-day samples from Papua New Guinea highlanders and aboriginal Australians. The new report underscores that, Still today, there are populations that have not been fully genetically described, and the Denisovans were geographically widespread, said paleogeneticist Cosimo Post of the University of Tübingen in Germany, who was not part of the new research. The identity of fossil remains from the area, however, remain unclassified. DNA analysis would be necessary to really determine which group of fossils belong to, which groups the fossils belong to, and DNA does not survive well in tropical conditions, unfortunately. It's also uncertain just what constitutes the anatomically distinctive skeletal features that would point to a fossil being Denisovan beyond genetics. Population geneticist Zhao Texera of the University of Adelaide in Australia, who did not participate in the new study either, suggests that Lorena and Jakobson's findings further increase my suspicions that Denisovan fossils are hiding in plain sight. Among previously excavated discoveries on Southeast Asian islands, it may be that fossils that have been identified as separate lineages may all be various forms of Denisovans, including H. luzonensis, H. floresiensis, and even H. erectus, he notes. Texera and his colleagues reported in Nature ecology and evolution last May, that the area of the southeastern islands in Australia was populated at one point by a genetically distinct Denisovan population from the southern part of mainland East Asia. These enigmatic ancestors will continue to surprise us as more information becomes available. Okay, let us switch now in the last few minutes from anthropology to botany It turns out that a carnivorous plant has been found hanging out in North America and no one had noticed until now. Triantha occidentalis, a kind of false asphodel, lives in boglands of the northwestern United States and Canada. It's been happily catching and digesting bugs for some time now without a single scientist having noticed. But it can now take pride of place as the 12th known Kind of plant to independently developed carnivory, the ability to consume animal flesh. Most plants that develop carnivory do so because they grow in soils that are nutrient poor, usually lacking nitrogen and phosphorus, which are required for carrying out photosynthesis. Now, it's independently developed 12 times, but that doesn't mean that there's only 12 pan- plants. In fact, there are about 630 plant species, individuals, that are currently known to be carnivorous. Of course, you might think of uh, plants like the Venus flytrap, but Venus flytrap and the pitcher plant. And so T. occidentalis was discovered to be carnivorous when researchers found that a genetic profile showed it lacked a gene that is often missing in other carnivorous plants. And so it hangs around close to humans and within the reach of urban areas, but again, until now, it has flown under the radar. It's really kind of amazing how much we don't know about even the flora and fauna that's right around our doorstep. Carnivorous plants have been fascinating people since the Victorian era because they turn the usual order of things on its head. This is a plant eating animals, said co-author Dr. Sean Graham, a professor in the Department of Botany at the University of British Columbia. We're thrilled to have identified one growing right here in our own backyard on the West Coast. They published their work in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Before our finding, over the past two decades, only one new example of carnivory has been found. I think people tend to think sticky hairs on T. occidentalis were for defense and didn't think of them with carnivory. Keishan Lin, a botanist at the University of British Columbia, and Columbia and lead author of the new study, wrote to Gizmodo. And so in order to test if the plants were actually consuming insects, researchers fed fruit flies with a particular nitrogen isotope. They then stuck the dead flies to the side of the plant. They figured that if the plant then came to have that isotope of nitrogen in its system, it could be inferred that it came from ingesting the fruit flies. And so they found that as much as 64% of the plant's nitrogen was derived from dissecting those insects. This is similar to levels found in other carnivorous plants. They found the hairs are located near the plant's flowers, but do not affect their ability to be pollinated. We believe that Triantha occidentalis is able to do this because its glandular hairs are not very sticky and can only entrap midges and other small insects, so that much larger and stronger bees and butterflies that act as its pollinators are not captured. Tom Ginevish, a botanist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, noted, The plant is able to feast on the small insects by excreting a digestive enzyme on its stem. Nutrients are then absorbed directly by the plant, with the plant also producing an enzyme called, called phosphatase, which breaks down nutrients containing phosphorus in order to gain both nitrogen and phosphorus from insects that it cannot obtain from the soil. So that is very cool. And it also brings us to the end of the show. So thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Wigeon by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.